0: James, in his first chapter, shows us that when we begin following Jesus, we begin a process of being tested by God. And God's purpose in this is that we be humbled and be made more dependent continually upon God. Now, the future, the end of this process, is blessing eternal life, immortality, glory. In the meantime, until we get to the end of the process, we learn humility. And what we learned this morning is humility is taking responsibility for what we do. Our sinful thoughts and actions are not God's fault. They are not the devil's fault. They are not anyone else's fault. They are my fault. The beginning of truth in the inner man ends with blessing and glory. We're reading in James chapter 1 from verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness an overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. There in verse 12, we see that the end of all the difficulty and all the suffering in our various trials is blessing. And James shows us that Blessing is that approval from God. When he has been approved, that means God is the one who does the approving. And God will say, I am pleased with you in every way. You are right in my sight. The only person we have to please in life is God. God. His opinion is the only opinion that counts. Say you please everybody. Everybody says, Oh, that Rob, what a fantastic guy. But I stand before God, and God shakes his head and says, Not here. You are unapproved. Doesn't matter if the entire universe votes for me, I'm still out. Now, God's approval is forever. It can never be changed or altered. Like U.S. president approval ratings, they can fluctuate, can't they? They can go up, up, up. Or somehow, with the current U.S. president, they only go down. You think, how much more down could they go? But God's approval is forever. Now, that's blessing in and of itself. If God says, "Well done, good and faithful servant," that's forever. But notice there's more. When he has been approved by God, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now that Word crown, there are several crowns or words for crown that are used in the New Testament. One is like a royal crown, but this particular word is the kind of crown that they would give a victor at the Olympic Games. It's a winner, an overcomer's crown. And there are promises that describe this crown in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 9:25 Paul says everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things they then do it to receive a perishable wreath a victor's crown but we an imperishable so this crown is new forever imperishable it does not wither it does not become weak fade or wear out. It is new forever. This crown is extreme joy. In First Thessalonians 2, verse 19, Paul says, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? A crown of joy. Can you imagine? You have an eternal crown. It's a crown of life. But it is glorious joy, a crown of joy. And then it's righteousness, Second Timothy 4, verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Exactly the same as what James says here. So it's a crown of righteousness. No spot, no blame, no wrinkle, no blemish. Perfect righteousness. And then this crown is glory. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this blessing of imperishability, extreme joy, righteousness, glory is the reward of persevering in loving Jesus. The promise is to those who love him. That is the goal. We love him because he first loved us. We received His love when He died for us. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And John says in 1 John chapter 4, We have believed and have come to know the love that God has for us, that He would give His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, you receive the love of God. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. You've passed from death to life. You love Him. And then you persevere in loving Him. You pursue that dependence upon Him, And you're knowing him. That is your faith, depending upon Jesus and knowing him. Now, if you continue to receive the love that Jesus has for you, you will persevere. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And to receive that love of God in Jesus is what strengthens your heart inside. So that what is outside is not that big a deal. The Apostle John says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And especially when he pours out his love in your heart. Say, man, if I get this. I can do anything. doesn't matter what's going on out here. You have a lockdown or not. You know what? I know God loves me. And I know where I'm going when I die. And no matter what the government dictates, the government cannot keep me alive. So I know where I'm going when I die. I am going to be with the God who loved me And gave himself for me. And he says, of all those you have given me, I have not lost one. So that's where I'm going. And I hope you're going there. And that love of God is the strength by which we are able to continue. Now, blessing is our future. But we live in the now, don't we? And for now, it's trials and learning humility. Trials bring humility because they teach us. And James, here in these scriptures, shows us two foundational truths that we must learn and base our lives upon. And the first truth is that we are really wrong. Are you prepared for that this morning, my studio audience? Don't be shaking your head, no. (laughs) You're going to learn something today, my friend. We are sinners. That's what James wants us to know. Do you notice here? It's not God's fault. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. James says God is testing us, but he is not tempting us. And the problem in understanding this is that the Greek word for tempting is the same word for testing. And the context is what determines the meaning. So we need to know the difference between testing and tempting. Testing discovers what is in the heart. Now, what do you suppose I have in here? Well, we could have a tasting test, and that would tell us. But what if we do something like what God does to find out what's in our cup? You could bump this cup, and it's going to spill, isn't it? Now, whatever comes out of the cup The bump didn't put it there, did it? All the bump does is show what is in there. Now, let's say I bump that cup and out comes battery acid. The bump is not the big deal. The big deal is what's in the cup. All the bump did was show what was in there. What happens if I bump that cup over? Pow! And out spills Fresh, clean water. It just shows us what's in the cup. Now, this is what God does. He bumps our cup, and we find out what's in them. You know what? God already knows what is in our cup. It's not to figure out, gee, I wonder what's in Rob. Well, let's just bump him a little bit and find out. Michael, aren't you interested? I'm interested. Let's do it. Pow! God already knows. What testing discovers is it discovers to me what is in my heart. Here I think I'm fresh, sweet water. I'm a nice guy. Aren't you a nice guy? Okay, that's two of us. But then we get the bump. What comes out? Battery acid. Me? Nice, sweet, fresh, me, battery acid. But see, I have to look at that and say, I did that. That's me. It's not what I imagine about myself. It's not what anybody else imagines about me. It's what I really am. And so testing shows me who I really am. Tempting is a solicitation to do evil by appealing to pleasure. Hey, this is going to be fun. It is attraction arousing hope or desire. And the point of temptation is to lead away from a usual or proper course by offering some pleasure or advantage. Hey, you don't have to be loyal. Take this money, you're going to be richer, and do what we want you to do. That's temptation. Now, look at the difference between these two words. God tests. There's no question about that. But God does not tempt. Can you imagine? God gives his son to die for your sins, and then he says, now I want to lure you away from salvation and everlasting life. Here, try this. Oh, darn, it didn't make you stumble. Let me try this. You know, if God did that, he would not be our Savior. He would be our enemy. God does not work against us. He's not our enemy. More on this in a minute. The big question then becomes, who is the enemy? And James says, it's you. It's me. You are your enemy. Each one is tempted by his own lust. Now, is there a devil? Yes. Does he solicit us to leave the right path and do evil for pleasure? Yes! But it is not the devil's fault that we give in to temptation. Why do we go after that pleasure or advantage that we think is so great? It's because there's something in us that responds to that temptation and says, Man, why are you waiting? I'm miles ahead of you. Let's go. We are carried away with our own lust. And James says, we're responsible for that. Now, why is it not the devil's fault? How come we can't say, the devil made me do it? Because Paul says so in 1 Corinthians 9 or 10, verse 13. Listen to what he says No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Now, I suppose if God didn't limit the temptation, the devil could steamroller us. We would be absolutely helpless. But God does limit that temptation, and he provides the way of escape. Our problem is we are not looking for that way of escape. And Jesus said to pray, To God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the way we're supposed to be praying. Now, the more we give in to sin, the less power we have to resist. And we continue as virtual slaves of sin. And so James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And it means literally stop being deceived. No longer be deceived about yourself. Don't be deceived about God or the devil. Take your Christian life seriously and deal with the enemy. That's you. You're the one who wants to do evil. Now, James shows us that we are sinners in our pleasures and in our displeasures. Isn't that interesting? Now, he's talking about being tempted in verse 13 and our desires and lusts. That's about our pleasures. That is one ground for temptation. And the Apostle John also brings this out in 1 John 2. Verses 15 to 17. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, lust is about our pleasures. And John says that's the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Desires. Advantages. I want this. I want that. These are our pleasures. But we also sin in our displeasures. What we don't like. And John's third aspect of the world is the boastful pride of life. Pride is the source of the wrath of man that John speaks about in verses 19 to 20, our displeasure. He says, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. But that's not us, is it? We are slow to hear, swift to speak, and swift to Wrath. Why is that? It's because we're thinking about ourselves. That is the very essence of pride. We are sensitive to every possible hint that someone does not think about us the way we think about ourselves. Now, I'm a fabulous person. Why don't you agree with me? Why do you have a slightly less opinion than I have of myself? And I think, who do you think you are? Court is in session. The judge is highly displeased. We pronounce judgment on your judgment of me. I pronounce my judgment on you. I condemn you. I condemn you to heck. And in that moment, I usurp the judgment that only belongs to God. And I am trying to put myself into the place of God. And you know, this is exactly what the devil did to become the devil, the enemy. He said, I will become like the Most High. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I am going to determine for myself what is right and what is wrong. Taking what belongs to God is not right. It's stealing. It is exalting myself above God. So, this boastful pride of life is wrong. So, here we have one truth here that trials and difficulties make clear discover to the one who follows jesus they convince me beyond a shadow of a doubt i'm wrong because i am only thinking of myself i am thinking about following after my lusts and desires and pleasures And I'm angry with anybody who crosses my will. In my pleasures and in my displeasures. It's not anyone else's fault. It's not my parents. It's not God. It's not the devil. James says, I am responsible. I am a sinner. That's what these trials are discovering to me. And it's here that James gives us another important truth. Right alongside this truth of, I am a sinner. Here's another truth we have to add to it. God is more on our side than we are. Look at verses 17 and 18. God is perfect. He's good. There's no shadow in him, anything less than good. There's no change. He doesn't go back and forth. Okay, I'm going to be good for a while. Okay, now I'm bad. Oh, we're back to good. Oh, I don't care anymore. I'm bad. He's the father. He loves, he begets, he gives life and everything that's good. That's what James says, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow or turning. Now look at his good and perfect gift. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he willed and he worked for his good pleasure. And God's will is to save sinners who know that they are sinners. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's what I thought. God wants to save sinners who know that they're sinners. Now, Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By God's doing, and it says here in James 1.18, of his own will, he decided, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because Jesus died for your sins. In your place. He rose again from the dead because they're all completely taken away from you for all time. Now you know, all you're doing is agreeing with God. That this is what he did. He took my sins. And everybody knows, right, that babies do not get born on their own will. They don't even exist. Before you need a mother, you've got to have a father. Nothing happens without a father. The Father is the one who starts things, no Father, no life. So eternal life starts with the Father willing you. He wants you. And it starts with the Father in eternity. Before he made anything, he says, I want you. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And the result is that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, you know, the first fruits were the first results of the harvest. And that is life having been planted and cultivated and now harvested when it is fully grown, mature, and ripe. Here's the result of your gifts, Father in heaven. Here they are, holy, filled with life, blessed forever. So this is the will of God to save sinners who know that they are sinners. God is for us. The reasonable response to these two truths, says James, is to lay the old life aside and put on the new life. Did you notice that? Verse 21. Therefore, the application of everything he said, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. That is the old you before Christ. It is a continual laying aside of your pleasures and your displeasures. Everything you like and everything you don't like. What makes you happy and what makes you angry? It's not about you anymore. It's about your life in Christ. Now this laying aside the old and putting on the new is all through the New Testament. Romans 13, 12. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Ephesians 4, 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new life, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Colossians 3, verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. First Peter 2, 1 Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. And see, that's the second part. Lay aside the old things, but put on. And James says it begins right here with receiving that implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now think about that. Implanted means right into the deepest part of you. And it has to send down roots and be established in you. You have to start thinking about new things in order to live in a new way. So the word is about Jesus in you. And that is your new life. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now, this word is powerful. James says, It is able to save your souls because it's from God. It's alive. It's active. What God says must happen. That's why the Word of God is powerful. It never returns to Him void, not having accomplished what He sent it out for. When God says, let there be light, there's light. Nothing can stop that. And the word of God planted into your heart enables you to receive the love of God. And as as you continually receive that love of God, you know what it does? It drives out all the other loves. You sin because you love sin. But here is the love of God. A stronger love breaks all the other loves. In comparison to this, said Jesus. You hate your mother, your father, your sisters and brothers, and even your own life. But you love this one thing, the God who loved you and gave himself up for you. You love him. And that love dries out all the other loves. And this one love takes over your life. Now you end up loving everybody else. Because that's what his love leads you to do. But not to love sin. It breaks those loves, drives them out. And you will persevere under trial, loving Jesus no matter what happens until you stand before the Father. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will crown you with righteousness and glory joy with an imperishable crown that blessing that he promised so you know what realize there are two aspects of your life there's now and there's the future now there's going to be various trials and those trials will discover what's in my heart should we be surprised and shocked oh Sweet, fresh me? I am a sinner? This shouldn't shouldn't shock us. See? But neither should it blow us out of the water and so derange us that we are just helpless. We should know exactly what to do with sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So, you know, we learn humility. And humility is the chief goal of what God is working in our lives because this humility is the essential character of God. We're headed to glory. We are headed to everlasting joy. But before honor is humility. It was so with the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is true also of us. And it brings up a second very important application here, that if we want to grow as Christians, we must not shift blame. Humility begins as we acknowledge that I am a sinner. And it means we have to get serious about sin. That is, most people think they're okay, just got a few problems. Ask anybody on the street, you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Got any problems? Yeah, I got a few problems, but mostly I'm okay. You know that if you think you're a good guy, just a few problems, you are always going to remain a slave of sin. You will keep trying to do what you know you ought to be doing, But you will fail miserably. You will never get it. Because deep inside your heart is a traitor to you. And that traitor doesn't want to give up sin. That traitor loves sin. and No matter how much you would want to follow God, the traitor says, never going to happen. We are going to do what we are going to do. And nobody can tell us what to do. Now, if you could save yourself, then Jesus died for nothing. He would just say, come on, pull up your big boy panties and get going or else. But you know what? You can try all you want and just realize, I do not want to do what God wants. I want to sin. So, you know, it's not God's fault. It's not anybody else's fault. It's your fault. You are a sinner. You have to take that on board. Now, people will even blame God for why they are still sinners. I am doing the best I can. What's the matter with you? Just like James here, let no man say I am being tempted by God. It's not God's fault. You're not pursuing this with Jesus. That is the main point. And see, people even look for unbiblical solutions to get what they want. Do you know that there's people who will pray to cast out the demon of tobacco that is in you? Or they will cast out the demon of lust, or the demon of pornography, or the demon of whatever sin you are struggling with but you know that's shifting the blame that's saying i got to get rid of this demon but basically i'm a good guy blame god blame a demon blame anyone you can even positive confess you know i confess health wealth prosperity and a holy life but guess what you're just talking nothing's happening You know, you can read the whole Bible, and never once does it say, cast out the demon of tobacco. Never says, cast out the demon of lust, not one time. That's because it's not biblical. The Bible says, do not shift the blame. Accept the blame. You are a sinner. Now, you know, the advantage of that is that Jesus came to save sinners. And if you confess yourself to be a sinner, you qualify. He will save you. But he didn't come for the righteous. So if you think you're righteous, good guy, just a few problems, guess what? You will never get anywhere. But if you come to him and you humble yourself, and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, then he's going to save you. And the way he will save you is that he will implant his word into you. And this is the second encouragement to get serious. Just as you're serious about the fact that you're a sinner, you must get serious about the word of God. It's not this book over here that, you know, in time of trouble. What's that verse about fear? You cannot have this willy-nilly connection with the Bible. It has to be your life. What would happen if you approached your job with the same intensity that you approach the Word of God? How long would you last at your job? You know, they would fire you for not being serious. It'd be like you're supposed to be doing your job, but you're playing Pokemon at your table. They'd look at you and say, get out of here. You're not serious. Now, This word of God is powerful to save your soul. That is the promise of God right there. But it doesn't work if you don't implant it. And that's the connection. You know, the farming is a covenant between God and the farmer. But each one in this covenant has their job. You know that God makes it rain and he makes plants to grow, but he doesn't. Plow. He is not going to come down from heaven and sit on that John Deere tractor and drive it around in the field. That's your job. And you know, it's the farmer's job to plant that seed. He can't make it grow, but it won't grow if you don't plant it. And the rule is true. If you only plant a little bit, you're only going to grow a little bit. How much do you want? You see, in this respect, the sky is the limit. So let me ask you straight. What is your first priority to read in the morning? What is your highest priority? What is the highest priority to read before you go to bed? And if you get serious with God, you will find that God will get serious about you. You're going to find, yes, I am a sinner. But God is kind and gentle, and He saves sinners. He's better than we give Him credit for. And it's very worth thinking about Him and living with Him and being caught up in how wonderful He is. And that is the life that's going to lead to ultimate blessing. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are better beyond our imaginations. The reality is that words like good and kind and generous don't even come close to how good you are. And we're so glad that you know everything about us. You know that in our hearts, we're enemies. And yet of your own will, you're saving us. For those who need to receive Jesus, you must receive him. And I pray in Jesus' name, that you would open up your heart and humble yourself before him and receive your Savior, Jesus. And for the rest of us, we're looking on and we're saying, yes, that's me. I'm okay with being a sinner because you save sinners. And therefore, I want to know you. I need to know you. So please help me to plant your word deep in my heart. And do a wonderful work of saving me. And we will give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name. And now, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our being together, bless our loving one another, and be with us the remainder of this day. Be with us the rest of this week. And no matter what comes, help us to live our lives with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.